So if you'd like to read along with me, we're reading from Matthew chapter 9 and starting at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Hello folks, uh, welcome to church. My name's Mark, if I haven't met you. My name's also Mark, if I haven't met you, because that's how names work. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're continuing on in... Uh, Matthew's Gospel tonight, uh, this is, I think, about the 19th sermon to get us to this point. So if you're not up to date, you can binge watch uh, those over the course of the next week, and then you'll be all good to go for next week. Uh, let's pray as uh, we have a think about this and uh, ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your precious word, uh, your word which is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. Uh, Lord, please, as we sit under your word now, would you be speaking to each one of us? Uh, you have promised that your word will never return to you empty. And so as we listen, 
please do the work in each one of us that you intend to do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, tonight's uh, we're going to do a bit of an eye test, a vision test. Okay, uh, I'm going to put up some pictures, and you tell me what you see. These are called Ishihara tests. Maybe you've seen these kinds of things before. What do you see now? Yes. Okay. All right. Good. 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 Uh, if you're sitting there and you're a bit confused and you think this is some cruel and unusual joke because all you can see is just a random collection of dots. Welcome to the club. I've got some bad news for you. Turns out you're colorblind. Uh, you may be one of the 8% of men and the half a percent of women who look at these and cannot see anything than just a jumble of dots. I'm led to believe that there are numbers somewhere buried in that collection of dots, but for the life of me, I cannot see them. So either you're playing a joke on me or I just have to trust you. Uh, it's possible, here's my point, uh, for people to be looking at the same thing but to perceive different things, right? Two people looking at the same thing and yet seeing something very, very different. I want to show you some more photos, do another eye test with you, okay? Let's look at the next photo. What have we got? Oh, it's Wollongong. It's Crown Street Mall. It's Eat Street. The markets are on. Wonderful. Okay, what do you see as you look at that picture? Let me show you one more photo. Let's go to the next one. What do we see? Ah, it's Port Kembla Beach. Awesome. Sun, surf, sand, people, crowds, right? Lots of crowds. Now, what do you see as you look at those pictures? Maybe for some of you, if you've lived in Wollongong for a little while, uh, then you might look at those pictures and you might remember the good old days, when the good old days when Crown Street Mall was just a goat track and where you had room to swing a cat at Port Kembla Beach. Uh, and you look at this and what you see is invaders, invaders who have come down from Sydney and who are ruining your little slice of heaven. This congestion everywhere, that's what you, you feel when you see these crowds. Or maybe if uh, you're more of a recent transplant to Wollongong and you've come from a bigger city, well then actually you look at these crowds, and that's not crowds at all, is it? I mean, this looks quite peaceful, doesn't it? Here are just some people like you going about their lives, enjoying this little slice of heaven, loving life down here in the Gong. What do you see when you look at the crowds here in Wollongong? If I was to confess to you, actually, that when I look at crowds, most of the time I actually don't see anything. Uh, it turns out I'm crowd blind as well as being colour blind. And by that, I mean, when I look at crowds, really what I just see is, is obstacles, you know, like cars in traffic for me to sort of get past. I don't think about the people. I just think about kind of trying to live my life and have them not interfere with me as much as possible. That's what I see when I see crowds. What do you see? What are you supposed to see as you look out? over the crowds in Wollongong? Here's actually a much more important question. What does God see as he looks out over the crowds in Wollongong? Because God is the one with a bird's eye view of all of this, right? God's vision stretches further than your or my vision does. God sees everything. Uh, God sees not just stuff on the surface, but he sees a person's heart. He sees beneath the surface. And so surely if anybody, when they look at the crowds of Wollongong, if anyone's going to have a right view of things, it's going to be God, isn't it? Wouldn't it be helpful to know what God sees as he looks at crowds of people? But that's actually what our Bible passage is about tonight. We're going to see in Matthew chapter 9 and 10, Jesus' vision of the world. We're going to see how Jesus perceives people. But more than that, we're actually going to see 
Jesus' vision for the world as well. Not just the world as it is, but the world as Jesus wants it to be. He's going to share that with us. And then once we've seen those two things, we're going to consider uh, what that means for you and I as we live our lives. So let's have a think about the first thing first, Jesus' vision of the world. And we'll pick up our passage uh, from verse 35 in chapter 9. Uh, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Now, if you've been here over the last three weeks, or we've looked at chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, you'll know that that's actually a really good summary of everything that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Jesus, the Messiah, God's King, the one with all authority, has come to earth to heal people and to show signs that demonstrate that he's actually come with a bigger mission than just that. He's come with a mission to save people, not just to heal people. All of these miracles, these healings, pointed to the fact that Jesus was the one who could save people from their sin. He talked about being the doctor who could cure people from being sin sick. And as Jesus has gone around over the last couple of chapters, uh, noticing the effects of sin and decay in people's lives, crowds of people have been flocking to him to be healed. And Jesus tells us here, actually, how he views those people. Verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now think about that description. That's what Jesus says. People who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And you think, Sheep without a shepherd. Okay, I mean, what's so bad about that? That sounds pretty good, right? Like free-range lamb, isn't that what's going on? For sheep who are free to go and kind of live their life however they want, isn't that a good thing? Well, no, it's not a good thing to actually be a sheep without a shepherd when you live in a world full of wolves. It wouldn't be a good thing to be a sheep then because you would have no protection. You would have no provision from your shepherd. You would have no direction set for you by your shepherd. Jesus looks and he sees these shepherdless sheep and he says they're harassed and helpless. That's his perspective. I wonder, is that what you saw when you looked at the crowds in those pictures? People who are harassed and helpless. Sometimes maybe that is what you see when you see people in Wollongong. Sometimes that's really obvious that that is actually the state of some people. You don't have to know people for more than a minute or two before you find out that actually their life is very difficult. They are weighed down by troubles and burdens and they're powerless to do anything about it. That's self-evident for some. But actually, I suspect most of us, thinking about the people that we know and that we see in our city as we go about our lives, in our schools, in our unis, in our workplaces, I think most of us would say, actually, people don't seem to be very harassed. They don't seem to be very helpless. Actually, most people seem pretty secure, pretty happy, uh, like they're doing just fine. Most people seem like they're pretty well in control of their lives. Wouldn't you say that's true? And yet... That's not how Jesus sees people. Jesus sees beneath the surface. Jesus sees behind the veneer. And he sees the people of Wollongong, our neighbours, our classmates, our colleagues, even the ones or perhaps even especially the ones who look like they've got their whole lives together. And he sees that they are harassed and helpless. Now, do you remember last week in chapter 9, uh, we met someone at the beginning of chapter 9 who's a paralysed man and his friends had brought him to meet Jesus. And it was pretty obvious what his problem was. His legs didn't work and he went there expecting Jesus to heal him so he could stand up and walk again. But do you remember in that little interaction that Jesus sees beyond the surface, doesn't he? He, he looks to what that man's greatest need is 
And it's not actually his legs, it's his sinful heart. Remember that? His biggest problem was not that he couldn't stand. His biggest problem was that he couldn't stand before a holy and righteous God because of his sin. He, like every one of us, was a rebel against God, somebody who's turned their back on God and chosen to live life our own way. The fact that we look like we've got our lives under control is exactly the problem. We've wrestled control away from God. That is our sin. We've turned our back on our creator. And you see, when you walk away from your creator, the one who is light and life, well, what do you expect to find except darkness and death? That's what awaits anyone who turns their back on God. That is why Jesus describes the crowds as harassed and helpless, because apart from him, apart from God, there is no hope. You see, when Jesus looks out at the crowds, he's looking through the lens of their eternal destiny. That's the category that Jesus has. He thinks first and foremost about where these people stand in relation to their creator. And so again, let me ask you, is that your vision? Is that how you think about the people in your life, your neighbours, your friends, your colleagues? Is your vision matching up to Jesus' vision here? Or do you think about people in entirely different categories? Not how they stand in relation to God, but something else altogether. Uh, when you go to an optometrist, if you ever have to go to an optometrist, I frequently do, uh, they will often give you a visual acuity test. That's one of these things where they put the letters up and they ask you to read them you know, in, as they get ever smaller on the page. Uh, if the optometrist you know, put this test up for me next time I go, asked me to read it, and I said, yep, sure, happy to read those letters. It's I-P-T-S-J-Q-R-K-G. The, the optometrist would just go, hey, oh, oh, Mark, 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 slow down, slow down. That's wrong. <laughs> you were wrong from the start. You're not seeing it correctly. Your vision is absolutely stuffed. And I, I, I could say at that point, well, you've got your way of seeing things and I've got my way of seeing things and, you know, to each their own, I guess. You know, you look at it your way, I'll look at it my way. I could say that, but that's pretty foolish, isn't it? Because his way of seeing things is objectively right in that moment, and mine is objectively wrong. And sooner or later, I will discover that when I walk face first into a wall or something, right? Jesus's vision of the people in this world is objectively right. He's the one who sees. He's the one who knows. He sees that sinners like us are harassed and utterly helpless. And it's better that we learn that truth sooner rather than when it's too late. This is Jesus' vision of the world, the world as it truly is. But Jesus, thankfully, he doesn't stop there. He tells us next his vision for the world, the world as he wants it to be. So look there in verse 37. Uh, where Jesus turns to his disciples and, and kind of switching metaphors, he tells them about this tremendous opportunity. He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into this harvest field. You see, as Jesus looks at the crowd, he also sees that there is this plentiful harvest amongst them, an abundance of people who are ripe for salvation, ripe to find hope in a saviour. Familiar words, aren't they? The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Maybe if you've been around a church for a while at all, 
it'll be familiar to you. I think we tend to focus on the second half of that phrase. The workers are few and we think, yes, more people should do MTS and, you, and they should. So if you want to have a chat about that, come speak to me or Sam or Sam. We think about that side of the equation, but it's actually really helpful for us to just dwell on the first half of this for a minute. <laughs> the, work, the harvest is plentiful. Often uh, we think that the harvest out there is slim pickings, right? And when you stop and think about it, Jesus, Jesus is right when he says that it's plentiful. We're wrong, he's right. If you think about the truth of that statement, globally speaking, you know that Jesus is right. You know that there are more Christians on earth today than at any other time in history. There are more people becoming Christians today than at any other time in history. The harvest is plentiful. Uh, do you know that in the Middle East, in the last 15 years, more Muslims have turned to Christ than in the last 15 centuries? In Iran, it's estimated that a 1,000 people are converting to Christ every single day. In China, the estimates are that there are about 60 to 80 million believers, but the real number may be much higher than that because it's very hard to count when it's exploding in growth so rapidly. In Nepal, back in 1970, there were 30,000 Christians in the country. Today, there's 1.2 million. They're estimating that the number of Christians in Nepal will double every six and a half years from here on out. The harvest is plentiful, friends. You think about it globally and you know that Jesus is right. Now, you, you might be sitting there and you think, okay, sure, Mark, plentiful harvest overseas, but not here in Australia. You know, here in Australia, this soil, it's hard like concrete, you know, not much of a harvest over here. Can I tell you that I, I think that's actually a mistake? I genuinely think that more and more people in Australia are becoming disillusioned with the, the secular society's view of a disenchanted universe. It's just not satisfying people. And I think that as our politics gets more fractured and as the moral norms in our culture tend to kind of go out the window, I think more and more people are actually searching for something transcendent, something that can anchor them in life and direct them. I'd go as far as to actually guarantee for you that there are plenty of people that you know that if you just kind of scratched a little bit deeper beneath the surface, you would find that they are wandering aimlessly through life, looking for some meaning and purpose and hope. And so I, I am confident that there are people in your life that are looking for Jesus today, even if they don't know that that's actually who they're looking for. I heard a an, really encouraging story this past week from a woman in our church uh, she's in the morning service. She, English is not her first language. Uh, and she's part of a Facebook group uh, here in Wollongong for other people from her country who speak her language. And uh, she just put up a post uh, about a week ago saying, hi, I'm a Christian. I'd like to read the Bible with people. Would anybody be interested in meeting with me and, meeting the, and reading the Bible? And within the space of about two days, six women had replied and said, yes, I'd love to meet, read the Bible. I've never had an opportunity to do that before. Sign me up. These are not Christian women. They're just people who have never had the opportunity, but now they're jumping at it. Isn't that encouraging? Friends, the harvest is more plentiful than you think it is. Uh, in his really excellent little book, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy, uh, Sam Chan talks about how often uh, the gospel message spreads through what he calls black swan 
moments. A black swan is like an outlier to the norm. And his point is that there are opportunities that come across your path to speak about Jesus, which you don't plan for, you, you can't predict. They're the outliers, the black swans. And he says that much of evangelism happens in this way because wouldn't you know it, there are plenty of people who are actually open to the good news of Jesus. The issue is that we just don't know who those people are. We can't pick them. We can't predict them. And yet they're there. And you find yourself in conversation with them all the time. P.S. Uh, this book is a fantastically little helpful book uh, about how to speak about Jesus to the people in your life. I bought a copy of this to give away at every one of the services today. And so this one is for someone in the room. If anybody would like help thinking, there you go, David. Thank you kindly. That's yours. Um, the harvest is plentiful. That didn't take long to sell that, did it? Good. You might like to get your own copy. The point is, friends, that the harvest is plentiful. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there are people out there who are longing to meet Jesus? It's pretty easy to fall into the trap of thinking that, you know, no one's going to be interested in the gospel. Uh, I could speak up, but everyone's so busy, everyone's so disinterested, everyone's maybe even hostile that, well, what would be the point? But, you know, Jesus' vision for the world, it doesn't leave room for that kind of pessimism, does it? Jesus looks out at the crowds in Wollongong and in Calderwood and in Australia and in this world, and he sees a plentiful harvest. He sees people who are ripe for salvation. And Jesus, of course, he wants that harvest to be brought in. That's what he wants in the future. He wants people to come to him, uh, him, the good shepherd, and find that protection and provision and direction that they're longing for in their lives. Do you know that Jesus described himself as the good shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's Jesus's vision for his world. People coming to him and finding life to the full. It flows from his Great compassion. Did you pick that up in verse 36? When Jesus sees the crowds, he has compassion on them. Now, don't be mistaken. Compassion is not the same thing as pity. Jesus isn't looking at people and feeling sorry for them. That's what pity is. Compassion is this deep kind of gut-wrenching concern for the other person's welfare. It is a love that moves you to action to alleviate that person's suffering. And it's compassion that Jesus feels for people. It's compassion that moved Jesus all the way to the cross where he laid down his life to rescue his wayward sheep. And so just for one minute, I'd just like to pause and I'd like to speak to you tonight if you are here and you are not one of Jesus' sheep, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, if you're not a Christian, I just want to spend one moment addressing you because I do wonder whether you've ever wrestled with the question of what is it that God thinks about me? Maybe you lay awake at night and wondering if there is a God, what would he think about me? Maybe, maybe you assume that he must be you know, angry at you. Uh, maybe you think oh, God's going to be disappointed in me for the life that I've lived. Maybe to you it feels like God, he's just not interested in you, that you've always thought that God was probably okay with the fact that you've lived your life over there and you've kept him over there. Maybe that's what you've assumed, but that's not the case at all. God sees you and he knows your heart. He knows your sin. 
and he recognizes the eternal danger that you are in from walking away from him, and he has compassion on you. That is how God feels about you. He is moved with love to help you in your helplessness. That's why he sent his son Jesus for you. And so I want to ask you, well, what is it that's stopping you from coming to Jesus and from finding the hope and the life that he promises? What have you got to lose by turning to Jesus? That might be a question you'd like to ponder. What is it that Jesus sees when he looks at the crowds in Wollongong? Lost sheep, harassed and helpless. What does Jesus want for these crowds? He wants them to be brought in like a harvest. And so lastly, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us? Uh, it kind of goes without saying, doesn't it, that uh, a harvest doesn't automatically harvest itself. <laughs> Someone's got to do something about it. Uh, so what should we do? Well, look what Jesus directs his disciples. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Verse 38, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The first thing we are to do is to pray. Isn't that surprising? If we see this world the way Jesus sees it, if we want for it the same thing Jesus wants for it, then before anything else, we must pray. Because you see, at its core, this harvest work, it is God's work. God is the one who saves people. God is the one who opens people's eyes to the Saviour, who opens their hearts to his love. And if God doesn't act, then actually nothing else that we do is even going to matter. We must pray and ask God to act, to see this harvest brought in. I shared with you a few weeks ago that this year I am praying a prayer all year long that God would be pleased to save 25 men, women and children from death and bring them to life in Jesus through us this year. Will you join me in that prayer? I'm going to be praying it all year long. Uh, also, hopefully by now, uh, you have begun praying for our new evangelistic course that we're starting after Easter, 321. Uh, you hopefully have noticed in your series handbook, towards the start of the book on page four, there's some space down there for you to write the names of three people that you want to pray for and hopefully invite along to that course later in the term. Have you got your three people that you're praying for? Three, three names twice a week for one minute. That's the point of the exercise. I've got my three names. My three names are my brother and his partner and one of my neighbours in my street. That's who I've been praying for over the last month and I'll continue to be praying for them all the way through to 321. Have you got people? I want to say if you're not praying about this harvest, then it's probably a reflection of the fact that we're not seeing the world the way Jesus sees it. We might think we are, but the proof is in the praying. And actually, if we're not praying, then it probably means that we're not filled with compassion towards people like Jesus is. We must pray for workers to be sent into the harvest to tell people about the hope that Jesus brings as the good shepherd. And then we must be prepared to be the answer to those prayers that we pray, because that's exactly what happens to the disciples in chapter 10. They are sent out by Jesus into the harvest field. You can kind of picture the scene. Jesus told them, all right, guys, stop, pray for the harvest. They get down on their knees, say their prayer. Amen. They stand up and Jesus, right, out the door, off we go. The harvest is now hit the road. 
We were praying for harvest workers. Yes, it's you. You're the answer to the prayer, says Jesus. Uh, that's what chapter 10 is, Jesus commissioning his disciples. It's sometimes called the little commission. There's the great commission at the end of Matthew. This is the little commission in chapter 10. And uh, we're not going to have time to go into the details of chapter 10 there today, uh, but I'm happy to answer questions. There's some pretty interesting stuff in there. Uh, you might like to ask a question for the podcast, our, our midweek podcast called Deeper, where we dig into the Bible passages each week. That'd be a great place if you've got lingering questions. But suffice it to say that this mission that Jesus sends his disciples on, it is unique to them and it's unique to that particular moment in time, in, in salvation history. There are, there are things in here that don't apply to us, okay? So Jesus gives authority to his 12 disciples to heal and to cast out demons and to raise the dead. Jesus has not given that authority to us. Uh, the fact that he tells them to only go to the Jews and not to go to the Gentiles, that doesn't apply to us either. Actually, Jesus gives further instruction that expands the scope of the mission later in the gospel. Uh, when he tells them there not to carry anything with them, well, that doesn't apply to us anymore too. Check out Luke chapter 22 later if you want to know why. But there are nevertheless some things in this commissioning that do apply to us, uh, which apply to all people who are working in the harvest. For instance, verse 7, uh, Jesus says, As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, that's our job, to pray and then to proclaim, to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven has come near. In fact, that the king of the kingdom has come and his name is Jesus and you need to turn to him. And Jesus warns his disciples in chapter 10 that they shouldn't expect to win any popularity contests when they go and do this. Verse 22 is the, the summary of all these warnings that he gives them. He says, you will be hated by everyone. <laughs> Why? Because of me. He says, you'll be hated wherever you go with this message because of me. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because Jesus, the good shepherd, he came into the world offering hope and life and forgiveness. And what did we do to him? We crucified him. And so as his messengers, well, we should expect hostility to this message as well. That's kind of a sobering sales pitch from Jesus as he tries to recruit his followers here. Right? And maybe as you hear a warning like that and a call like that to, yes, pray, but also proclaim in the face of a hostile world, maybe you're thinking, okay, you had me with praying. I was up for that, Mark. It's up for that, Jesus. But proclaiming, <laughs> thats I don't know whether that's really for me. You know, I, I'm, I'm not a professional. I'm not that impressive. I'm not good with words. Nobody's going to listen to me. We'll just leave that for somebody else. Can I say, if you're thinking that way, like I'll just park proclaiming over there for someone else, can I tell you, you're in good company? Because I think that the 12 disciples at the start of this chapter would have been kind of wrestling with that exact same thing. You get introduced to the 12 disciples there at the beginning, chapter, 12, uh, chapter 10, verse 2, and uh, we get listed who they are. Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Do you notice in that list, there is no Simon the Olympian. There is no Andrew the CEO. There is no Matthew the MP. These are not impressive, successful people in the world's eyes. Do you see, friends, that God does not put his mission 
in the hands of professional orators and religious experts. He puts it in the hands, or rather on the lips, of fishermen and tax collectors. He puts it on the lips of students and stay-at-home mums. He puts it on the lips of extroverts and introverts. He puts it on the lips of young and old. He puts it on the lips of his disciples, you and me. That's Jesus' plan to bring in this great harvest. His disciples praying and then proclaiming to a hostile world that Jesus is Lord. How's your vision? Are you seeing the world the way that Jesus sees it? Do you look at other people and see them as lost sheep, harassed and helpless in need of a saviour? Do you long for the world what Jesus longs for, for that great harvest to be brought in and for people to find life in Jesus? And then will you pray? And will you proclaim that the kingdom of heaven has come? Because, friends, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that you have come after lost sheep like us that you sent your son Jesus, the good shepherd, to lay down his life for his sheep. Thank you that in him we find protection and provision and direction, that we find life and light and hope and forgiveness and everything that our hearts are longing for. Lord Jesus, we trust you that the people in this world are ripe for harvest. Help us to see others through that lens and fill us with compassion so that we would pray and so that we would be bold and proclaim that there is life to be found in you. Amen.